Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, This morning we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you will find our text on page 952. I do encourage you to find the outline that's provided in the bulletin uh, to take notes on that outline and then later on to use the discussion questions that are found on the back side, uh, either alone with the Lord or together with others in discussing uh, the application of this passage to our lives. I had my first lesson in the doctrine of total depravity and total inability when, as a youngster, I was evangelizing my, bro- my younger brother. Uh, the, the Lord saved me at a young age. I thank the Lord for His grace to me uh, in salvation. And He gave me a, a heart to, to share the gospel with my younger brother. And I wanted my younger brother to be saved as well. And I remember at times uh, sharing the gospel with my brother. His name is Mark. And uh, I couldn't understand why he didn't want to become a Christian. To me, it only made sense. Because my eyes had been opened by the grace of God. I couldn't understand why my brother wouldn't respond to the gospel. He seemed very indifferent to it. I warned him about hell. I warned him about God's judgment. I told him about God's salvation. and He didn't really seem to care. That was my first lesson in total depravity and total inability. Much later on in life, when I learned the doctrines of total depravity, that sin has affected all the faculties of a person. Uh, that, That sin affects not just our speech and our conduct, but that sin has corrupted our will. That sin has corrupted our mind. Sin has corrupted our heart so that we do not desire God. But in our hearts we are hostile towards Him. As I began to learn the doctrine of total depravity and also the doctrine of total inability as Jesus says in John chapter 6 that no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws Him. We may hear the gospel with our physical ears But no one has the ability to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith unless the Father sovereignly, graciously draws the individual to Christ. It was when I began to understand these biblical doctrines that I looked back and go, Aha! Now I understand how it was that I could share the gospel with my brother And to me, it's the clearest thing in the world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He was indifferent, not interested in responding to the gospel. Now, praise the Lord that in God's God's grace, he did save my brother later on. That was a great joy to see. Now, as we will see in our text, the gospel is by nature offensive. It is foolishness to the unregenerate mind. But to those who are sovereignly and graciously called by God, 
The gospel is the power and the wisdom of God. This text that we're going to study this morning is a very foundational text that all of us need to understand about the nature of the gospel. If we are to view the gospel rightly, and if we are to share the gospel rightly, we have to understand the teaching in this passage. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18-25. through 25. Please stand in honor of the word of God if you are able. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of his age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. In chapter 1, verse 10, through the end of chapter 4, Paul rebukes a serious problem in the church that we call party spirit. That is, the division of the church into different rival parties, each flocking around and exalting a different church leader. Remember what Paul said in verse 12. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In our text today, Paul gives us the antidote to party spirit. The word of the cross. And understanding its place in God's purpose. The word of the cross And understanding its place in God's purpose is the antidote that Paul gives for party spirit. It is the cross of Christ that unites us in the church. The message of the cross strips away every reason for boasting in man and the things of man that we would boast in the Lord alone. The Corinthians quarreling revealed that they had absorbed some of the ideals and values of the pagan world around them. In our text, Paul seeks to undermine their party spirits by turning their values upside down with the word of the cross. He began speaking of the good news of the cross back in verse 17. Look at 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is saying here in verse 17 that to have come with words of eloquent wisdom in the ears of the unregenerate would have been to negate the message of the cross. Now Paul explains this and he expounds upon this in our text. In our text we will first of all see the nature of the word of the cross. Second, the reason why the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
And third, how the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. First of all, the nature of the word of the cross. Look closely with me at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What a contrast. On the one hand, to those who are perishing in their sins, headed toward eternal destruction, the word of the cross appears to be folly. Folly is foolishness. The word of the cross appears to them to be utter foolishness. The word of the cross is the message of salvation from sin through the crucifixion of the Son of God incarnate as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of God's people. It's the central message of the Bible. The Old Testament foretold it, and the New Testament reveals that coming of Christ, reveals uh, His work at the cross, followed by the resurrection, and reveals to us the significance of the cross. The word of the cross is central in the Bible. Now, the word of the cross leaves no room for man's merit. The word of the cross leaves no room for man's wisdom. It leaves no, no room for man's work. It leaves no room for man's attainment. And it leaves no room for man's glory. The merit, the wisdom, the work, the attainment, and the glory all are of the triune God in the word of the cross. What man contributes is what? His sin. That's what man contributes, his sin. Being that the unregenerate man is committed to self, the word of the cross is foolishness to him. Crucifixion was repugnant to both Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. To be crucified was about the most shameful thing that could happen to a person. It was actually designed to inflict maximum shame upon the individual. The message that a crucified Jew from some insignificant village is God's Son, who was sent from heaven, who is the, is, who is the Savior of men, who is the Lord of all, who is the future judge, sounded like utter folly in the ears of those who are perishing. How could this be true of a crucified Jew from an insignificant village? God's Son, sent from heaven, the Savior of men, Lord of all, future judge of all mankind, foolishness, folly. He was crucified. To them, crucifixion spelled shameful defeat, not glorious salvation. Salvation is brought in power as you conquer the enemy and deliver the people. Crucifixion, that's shameful defeat. Man was not looking for the one true God to humble himself in becoming a man and to bear our sins as a substitute by dying the death of a vile criminal or traitor. Man was not looking for that. Look again at the contrast in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In contrast to those who are perishing, 
are those who are being saved. For the believer, there are past, present, and future aspects of salvation. The believer was saved when they first believed in Christ. They are being saved in sanctification, and they will be saved in glorification. Paul says here that the word of the cross, while it's folly to those who are perishing, those who are headed towards eternal judgment, to us who are being saved, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those who are being saved see the word of the cross for what it really is. Not foolishness, but the power of God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? For salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Those who are being called see the gospel this way, as the power of God for salvation. The word of the cross has divine power to raise the sinner from spiritual death and impart newness of life. The word of the cross has divine power to save the sinner from sin's penalty, to save the sinner from sin's power, and to bring the the saved sinner all the way to glory. What Paul says here in verse 18 explains what he said in verse 17, that he does not preach the gospel with words of worldly wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. When he said that he does not preach the gospel with words of worldly wisdom, it's translated in the ESV as words of eloquent wisdom. In context, it's words of worldly wisdom. Paul doesn't use words of worldly wisdom in preaching the gospel. If he did, the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. Because the gospel is folly to the unregenerate mind, it cannot be preached with words of worldly wisdom. A message that appeals to the world's wisdom is not the word of the cross, and therefore does not have the power to save sinners. A gospel like the Roman Catholic gospel that appeals to man's desire to contribute something to his salvation is no gospel at all. A gospel like the easy believism gospel that affirms that, uh, that affirms man as he is and does not call man to repentance and conversion, that is no gospel at all. And a gospel like the prosperity gospel that offers the fulfillment of man's earthly desires is no gospel at all. All these false gospels appeal to worldly wisdom. In other words, the worldly values of fallen man, making the message palatable to the unregenerate. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's not palatable to the unregenerate mind. It's folly to them. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, why has God designed it? That the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why didn't God design the gospel in such a way that the perishing would see it as wisdom? Well, Paul tells us in verses 19 to 20, uh, which can be summarized as the reason why the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. 
and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of his age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul quotes in verse 19 from Isaiah 29 verse 14 in which God revealed his purpose to destroy and thwart the wisdom of the world. In other words, to prevent it from succeeding and to show it to be foolishness. Think about what the book of Proverbs teaches about the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the world's wisdom doesn't start with the fear of the Lord. True wisdom exalts God, while the world's wisdom exalts man, making God's wisdom folly uh, in their eyes. And as the world's wisdom exalts man, that makes man's wisdom folly in God's eyes. True wisdom exalts God, while the world's wisdom exalts man. God, who has determined that he alone will be exalted, has purposed to thwart the world's self-exalting wisdom. Paul asks, where is the one who is wise? He's writing to a church in Corinth. Corinth was in Greece, and Corinth reflected Greek culture. Greek culture was built around philosophy. The word philosophy literally means love of wisdom. Philosophy provided a view invented by man of the meaning of life, of values, relationships, purpose in life, identity, eternal destiny. The Greeks had perhaps as many as 50 philosophical parties or movements which vied for acceptance and influence. The Greeks prided themselves in their philosophical wisdom. And Paul is challenging such a one to step forward. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? The scribe was the most learned of the Jews. The scribes were experts in the Old Testament scriptures and experts in Jewish tradition that they added to the scriptures. Jesus said to the scribes in Matthew 15, 7-9, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And when Jesus said that, he was quoting verses in Isaiah just before the verse in Isaiah that Paul quoted in our text. Paul was one, once one of these scribes. And now, Paul challenges such a one to step forward. Where is the scribe? And where is the debater of this age? Debater of this age refers to the Greek philosophers who debated philosophical ideas, and it possibly also refers to the Jewish scribes. Where is the debater of this age? Step forward. Paul is asking, where is the wise man or scribe or debater of this age who has truly succeeded in reaching God? There is none. 
Paul says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God has shown it to be foolish by not allowing anyone to find him by it. He has shown it to be foolish by resisting those who follow it. He has shown it to be foolish by thwarting it. We read in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, that Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I will thwart the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. God has hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and he's revealed them to little children. For this was his gracious will. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, because God has purposed that he will not be known through the wisdom of the world, that he will thwart it, that he will destroy it. If a person will know him, then they will have to forsake their worldly wisdom and bow before God's revelation. They will have to forsake their self-exalting wisdom and bow before God's God-exalting revelation. In God's design, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But that is only half of it. The other half is that the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. And we see this in verses 21 through 25 which can be summarized as how the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. Look with me at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul says, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That in God's wise plan, the world will never come to know God through their wisdom. Their wisdom leads them in the opposite direction. John MacArthur, in his commentary, writes, Man's increase in knowledge and philosophies tends to increase his problems, not solve them. Hatred increases. Misunderstanding increases. Conflicts and wars increase. Drunkenness increases. Crime increases. Mental breakdowns increase. Family problems increase. The more man looks to himself and depends on himself, the worse his situation becomes. As his dependence on his wisdom increases, so do his problems. The source of mankind's problems is sin. And the solution to sin is salvation in Christ. But the world's wisdom is not willing to recognize this. Paul writes, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Understand that God is not concerned about pleasing man. God does as He pleases. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleases God to save sinners through the preaching of a message that is foolish in the world's eyes. The message of the cross. A message that unregenerate men reject, that they purposely ignore, or they scathingly ridicule. Preaching is the proclamation of God's revelation. Preaching is not philosophizing. 
Preaching is not debate or discussion. Preaching is not man's thoughts about God. No, preaching is the proclamation of God's revelation. It is God's plan to save, through the preaching of the cross, those who believe. Those who turn from worldly wisdom and bow before God's revelation and believe the message of Christ and the cross. The word of the cross is the message of Christ's finished work of atonement for the sins of his people. And God is pleased to save those who turn from their sin and their own works to Christ, trusting in Christ's finished work. Let's continue in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly the Gentiles. Paul says Jews demand signs. That should remind us of some passages in the Gospels. For example, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and following, we read that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now this is chapter 12 of Matthew. So what has happened before this? Jesus has performed many signs in the presence of multitudes of people. He has healed the sick. He has made the lame to walk. He has healed the blind. He has cleansed lepers. He has shown numerous signs that he is the Son of God incarnate, that he is the promised Christ. And here you have some scribes and Pharisees saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. As if he had not performed any already. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus saw through their words to their hearts. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Their asking for a sign was a sign of their own unbelief. They had been given sufficient revelation. And they had rejected. And if they had rejected the previous signs, they're not going to believe any other sign that is given to them. Jews demand signs. In John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They wanted Jesus to continue to multiply the, the, the loaves and the fish. They wanted more miraculous feedings. They didn't believe the revelation that was already given to them. Jews demand signs. It's an expression of unbelief. In our text, in verse 23, Paul says the preaching of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews. 
The Jews were looking for a Messiah who would come in earthly power and splendor. A Messiah who would deliver the Jewish nation from their political enemies. A Messiah who would establish an earthly throne and kingdom. And they understood that a crucified person was under the curse of God. For the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23 state, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. A man who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. And so they understood that one who was crucified on, on, that, on a tree was under the curse of God. The preaching of Christ crucified, Paul says, is a stumbling block to Jews. They're looking for the, 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 the opposite in a Messiah. They're looking for, 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 for the glory. They're looking for the power for the earthly kingdom, now, they're not looking for a suffering servant. Not looking for one who will be crucified for his people. Not looking for someone who will be under the curse of God. To the Jews, the preaching of Christ is a stumbling block. The preaching of Christ crucified is offensive to the unregenerate Jewish mind. Rather than believing the message, they stumble over it. Now, how about Greeks? Paul says in verse 22, Greeks seek wisdom. They want proof through human wisdom, through ideas that they can consider and debate. And to them, Paul says, the preaching of Christ crucified is folly. Here, as Paul speaks of Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles, they are representative of all unbelieving mankind. All will find an excuse for rejecting the message of Christ crucified. Go on to verse 24. But, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. To these individuals who are spoken of in verse 24, we see the message of Christ crucified is not a stumbling block. It is not foolishness to them. It is just the opposite. To them, the message of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the one of the message, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. These individuals believe the preaching of the cross. Now, what makes the difference? Jews and Greeks see the cross as something offensive. They see it as Foolishness, they reject the word of the cross. But these individuals in verse 24, very different, just the opposite. They see the message of, of Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. What makes the difference? Observe in verse 24 that what makes the difference is the calling of God. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Note that word called, to those who are called. We saw God's calling back in verse 9. I want you to go back to verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is true of every Christian. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of God's Son. Go back to verse 2. 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, called to be saints. Verse 9, called into the fellowship of His Son. This is an important doctrine in the New Testament. The divine call. A key passage on this divine calling is Romans chapter 8, verse 30, which says, And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. So everyone whom God predestined, he called, and everyone he called, he justified. When Paul speaks of God's call, he speaks of God's sovereign call, his effectual call. The divine calling is related to the gospel call. The gospel call that, 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 that I give as I, I, I proclaim the gospel, the gospel call that you proclaim as you evangelize others, the, the gospel call calls sinners to Christ for salvation, calls sinners to repent of sin and believe in Christ. And the divine calling is related to that. The divine call is God's sovereign efficacious call that comes through the gospel to the elect and actually brings the elect sinner to Christ in repentance and faith. No one is divinely called apart from the gospel call because God's calling works through the gospel call. No one is saved apart from hearing the gospel message. At the same time, many hear the gospel call who do not answer that call, but everyone who is divinely called answers the call. Because the divine call is inherently powerful to overcome the effects of depravity and to bring the sinner to repentance and saving faith. And so, if you are a Christian today, think back to how you were saved. At some point, by God's grace, you came to understand the gospel message. Maybe as you read the Bible. Maybe as someone else preached the Word of God. You came to hear and to understand the Gospel, but that wasn't it. That wasn't all. God Himself worked in your heart. He worked in your heart to make that gospel message effectual in your heart and life. He changed your heart. He opened your blind eyes. He actually drew you by His sovereign grace unto the Lord Jesus Christ because He called you divinely, efficaciously, sovereignly. You responded to the gospel message in repentance and faith. In the exercise of God's sovereign pleasure, God issues the effectual call in the heart of the elect as they hear the gospel, powerfully summoning the sinner out of spiritual death and blindness, and by virtue of the creative power of his word, imparting new spiritual life to that sinner, giving him a new heart, along with eyes to see and ears to hear, and thus enabling him to repent and believe in Christ for salvation. The divine call, which is what Paul talks about when he talks about that we've been called. The divine call is analogous to Christ called the Lazarus. In John eleven forty three, when Jesus said to Lazarus, who was dead in that tomb, Lazarus, come out. There was power in that call. Christ called dead Lazarus back to life. He called dead Lazarus to come out of that tomb. 
and because God is because Christ spoke with sovereign power, Lazarus came forth. The divine call of God is efficacious. It is effectual. Now I want you to look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. This divine call that Paul speaks of is a call to come to Christ and to enter into all the spiritual blessings that one receives in Christ. We read in verse 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The gospel goes out to many Jews, to many Greeks, to many Gentiles, but to those who are called, Christ is seen as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who are called to the message of Christ crucified with new eyes, they recognize it for what it really is. They recognize that the message of Christ is the power of God, the power of God unto salvation. They recognize that the gospel of Christ sets sinners free. And they recognize that the message of Christ is the wisdom of God. That Christ the cross has perfectly displayed the glory of God. To the one who is called, the gospel is not this folly, it's not this, this offense. To the one who is called is an expression, a demonstration of the glory of God in Christ. For at the cross, we see the love of God on full display. And that God, the Father, sent His Son to die for sinners, to redeem them, to save them. This is love, that God sent His Son as the propitiation for our sins. This is love, that Christ, the Son of God incarnate, laid down His life for us who were His enemies. This is love. This is grace. We are totally undeserving of of being redeemed. Totally undeserving of anything, receiving anything good from God. We deserve God's eternal condemnation. The cross displays the grace of God. Where Jesus Christ dies in the place of guilty sinners. The innocent dying for the guilty. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. The godly dying for the ungodly. This is the wonderful grace of God. And this is the wonderful mercy of God. God knows our utterly helpless estate, dead in trespasses and sins. And in mercy, He has sent His Son to redeem us. He has sent, in, in mercy, He has sent His Son to purchase us out of slavery to sin. In, in mercy, He has sent His Son to reconcile us to God. 
This is the mercy of God, and this is the justice of God. God is just. It's one of his attributes. He must punish sin. And we see at the cross, in fuller display than any other display so far in history, we see the justice of God. As God the Father punished our sins. The wages of sin is death. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The wages of sin is death. God is holy. He is just. He, he must punish sin appropriately. He must punish sin justly. And here we see at the cross the justice of God. Where at the cross Jesus died as the propitiation for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God. The Father chastised the Son And the son said at the end, it is finished. Justice has been satisfied. The penalty has been paid in full. The unregenerate Jew, the unregenerate Jew, this is a stumbling block, a crucified Messiah. To the unregenerate Greek, foolishness. The Son of God, incarnate, dying on a cross? No way. But to the one who is called by the grace of God, we see in the word of the cross the great glory of God. We bow before the God of the gospel and we worship. The one who is called, the word of the cross, is the wisdom of God. Could man ever devise a way of salvation as great and glorious as the cross of Christ? No way. Only God could devise such a glorious salvation. The cross exalts God. And that's why it's foolishness to the unregenerate mind who's committed to self, not to the glory of God. The cross exalts God. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To the unbeliever, the idea of a crucified Savior is foolishness, To the unbeliever, crucifixion shows one to be weak. But what appears to the unbeliever to be foolishness is, in fact, wiser than men. And what appears to the unregenerate mind to be weakness is, in reality, stronger than men. It is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. In light of all that we have seen this morning, let me ask you some questions. To what kind of preaching are you drawn? There's a lot of preaching out there. You can find it on the internet. Um, You can find it in a lot of different churches. To what kind of preaching are you drawn? Are you drawn to preaching that appeals to to the desires of the world? Or are you drawn to the preaching of Christ and Christ 
crucified. Understand that polished, positive preachers are no substitute for the preaching of the cross. In fact, those who do not proclaim crucified are false teachers. Because Christ crucified is the heart of the Bible. So if your preaching doesn't include Christ crucified, what you're preaching to me is something different from the Bible. To what kind of preaching are you drawn? Be very careful that you're not drawn to preaching that appeals to the desires of the world. Paul said, I did not come preaching in the words of eloquent wisdom. I didn't come preaching the wisdom of the world. The gospel is absolutely antithetical to the wisdom of the world. We need to be drawn to preaching that preaches Christ and Christ crucified. Next question. How do you view the message of Christ crucified? Do you understand the message of Christ crucified? If you don't understand it, then, then, then I, I challenge you to, to read the Gospel of Mark and read the book of Romans. And then if you still understand the message of the cross, read the book of Galatians. Study these books. Study the Bible that you might understand the message of Christ crucified. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. The message of Christ crucified is the only message by which we can be saved. You need to understand the message of the cross. Do you love to hear the message of the cross? If you are a genuine believer in Christ, if you are saved, you love to hear the message of Christ and Christ crucified. Because you know him as your savior. And you know him, you, you know his work at the cross as his work that has saved your soul. Next question. Have you, by God's grace, turned from worldly wisdom to Christ and believed the gospel of Christ crucified? To believe the gospel, we have to turn away from the values that we once held dear. We have to be converted. We have to be born of the Spirit. We have to be born of God. And the gospel, in its truth, will not make any sense to you if you're holding on to the values of the world. Have you turned from worldly wisdom to Christ and believed the gospel of Christ crucified? If not, I implore you this morning to believe the word of the cross, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, and to turn to Jesus Christ, believing in Him, trusting in Him as your one and only Savior from sin, and in faith submitting your life to the Lordship of Christ, 
to follow Jesus as your Lord the rest of your days. Believe the message of the cross. We have to be humbled by the Spirit of God in order to to bow before God's revelation and to believe the message of the cross. We have to let go of our pride. We have to confess our pride and humble ourselves before God's revelation. We believe the message of the cross because it's been given to us by God. It's been spoken by God. It's the word of God. And so it exposes our sin. And so we agree with God about our sin and we confess our sin to God as as sin against Him. And we believe the message of the cross that God has sent us in Christ the Savior that we need from our sins. Because of God's revelation, we humble ourselves before Christ and we trust in Him as our Savior. We submit our life to Him as our Lord. It's bowing before the revelation of God. It's letting go of our values. It's turning from our sin. It's turning from our works. It's embracing Christ and His work in faith. The last question. When you evangelize, do you understand your responsibility rightly? As Christians, we are Christ's witnesses until Jesus returns. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We are called to make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. While not all are given a special gifting in evangelism, all are to be involved in evangelizing. Now when you evangelize, do you understand your responsibility rightly? Understand from our text that our responsibility in evangelism is not to make the gospel palatable. It isn't palatable to the unregenerate mind. It is folly to the world. We're not to take what, what is to them folly and use their own thinking to try, and their own values to try to make it look like wisdom to them. It is folly to them. We're not to try to make the gospel palatable. We're we're not to try to smooth out the rough edges of the gospel that are offensive. Rather, our responsibility as Christ's disciples in evangelism is to faithfully proclaim Christ crucified, even if it means offending the listener. We have to get the message right. We have to be faithful to the message. Understanding that God is pleased to save some through the preaching of this offensive message. Understand from our passage that it is for God to sovereignly work in hearts. We can't change minds. We can't change hearts. And so as we evangelize, we are to pray asking that God will work in the hearts of those who hear the message. Asking God to call individuals unto himself for salvation. 
Asking God to take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Asking God to open the blind eyes. Asking God to draw the individual unto Christ. And when someone is converted, understand all the glory goes to God. None of it goes to the person who believed, and none of it goes to us who shared the gospel with them. All the glory goes to God. We have simply proclaimed a message that to them is foolishness, but God has worked in their hearts to make that message effectual. He has called them to himself. He has opened their blind eyes. He has given them a heart of flesh. He has brought them from death into life. It is his work. All the glory goes to God. This is a very foundational passage. And if, if you have not understood it as we have gone through it, study it further. It, it, it's, it's not like reading a, an account of Jesus healing someone. We read that, it's pretty straightforward. Jesus in this healing has shown himself to be the Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, we are to believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. This goes deeper. This is harder to understand. But it is clear. It is important for us to understand. So if you have not understood it, continue to study this passage. This passage needs to shape our understanding of the nature of the gospel And as you have your understanding of the nature of the gospel shaped by this text, it will affect how you evangelize. And it will affect what you understand that preaching is to be about. And therefore, what kind of preaching you are to sit under and feed your soul with. May the Lord use this passage unto his glory in our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of Christ and his cross. Oh, Lord, we have nothing to contribute to our salvation. We have just contributed our sin. In salvation, you do all the work. We are so thankful that you did not send us unto eternal judgment but rather that you sent us your own Son as our Savior. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying down your life as the propitiation for our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the ransom, for redeeming us, for reconciling us at the cross. This is your grace and your mercy. This is your love. And we thank you for it. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be faithful in proclaiming the word of the cross uh, to this world that is perishing. We know that it is your will that men, women, boys and girls of every tongue, tribe and nation would be saved from now all the way up until the return of your son. We know that in your plan you include us in this, as you give us the responsibility of taking the word of the cross and proclaiming it. You are pleased 
through the foolishness of the preaching of the word of the cross to save those who believe. How will they hear if no one preaches? Oh, Lord, enable us to be faithful to you. Keep us, Father, from giving way to the temptation to, to try to make the gospel palatable by adjusting the gospel. May we not adjust the gospel. But, Lord, may you change hearts to embrace the gospel in faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.